going to start my message this morning with a video clip that is kind of momentous because it's not from Lord of the Rings. It's actually from Gladiator. Uh, anyone seen Gladiator? It's kind of, kind of you, what, yeah. My, uh, my, so it feels a little risky to show a clip from this movie because years ago I showed a clip from Gladiator and that didn't go so well. Actually, it went fine in the first service. I showed this conversation and there was this great dialogue scene that, that I was showing and in the second service, I think maybe this was so long ago that it was like VHS and they just kept the tape running and then in the second service they hit play and it wasn't queued up and all, all I remember seeing is, is a guy, a gladiator holding two swords just about to chop, and he literally, this is me, preacher guy, he chops off the guy's head, head goes flying. And I'm, I'm shouting from the, from the front, cut, cut, no, not that kind of cut, stop, right? So, Aaron, have we got the right scene queued up? I'm feeling nervous. Um, the backdrop of the scene I want to show you is the emperor of Rome, uh, Marcus Aurelius. He's, he's decided to actually turn Rome back to a republic. And so he has a conversation with his son, his kind of power-hungry son, that he is not going to succeed him as emperor. So Commodus and, and Marcus Aurelius. Let's watch the scene. Wiser older man is to take my place. My powers will pass to Maximus to hold in trust until the Senate is ready to rule once more. Rome is to be a republic again. Maximus. Yes. My decision disappoints you? You wrote to me once, listing the four chief virtues. Wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. As I read the list, I knew I had none of them. But I have other virtues, Father. Ambition. That can be a virtue when it drives us to excel. Resourcefulness, courage, perhaps not on the battlefield, but there are many forms of courage. Devotion to my family, to you. But none of my virtues won your list. You're not missing much. It gets pretty ugly pretty quick there. But uh, what was first on the emperor's list of his four virtues? Wisdom, wisdom. What was the first virtue that Commodus mentioned? Ambition. Ambition. Uh, wisdom always makes the chief list of virtues. Uh, ambition does not. And today we're going to explore, you know, through the study in the book of James, we're going to explore 
why God highly values wisdom, but he has quite a different opinion about the, the idea or the quality of selfish ambition. We're going to explore wisdom by God's definition as the author of Proverbs urges us why wisdom ought to be pursued above all else. So we're going to read, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to look at James chapter 3, verse 13. We're carrying on in this series, and uh, I I love this passage. Um, And if you're able, I'm going to encourage you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. May God bless the reading of his word. And you can have a seat. Uh, If you look at the beginning of this uh, passage, James introduces this paragraph on wisdom by asking the question, who among you are wise and understanding? Like, raise your hands, right? And if if James asked us, who is wise, we might be tempted to think about people who can speak well, you know, who who, uh, have wise words, eloquent speech. Maybe they're the kind of person you go to for good advice. I think James would say that's only a partial answer. If we want a more complete answer to the question of, of who's wise, don't just listen to what people say, look at how they live. He says, let them show their wisdom by their good life. Uh, James would say you could be really bright, Uh, you can have a lot of letters behind your name, Uh, you can actually get all the answers to the questions on Jeopardy, uh, which would be a miracle. Uh, You can, you know, be the star of your pub trivia team, But somehow, if you can't translate your knowledge into living, you're not really wise. You ever ever met anybody like that? Somebody who's just really, really smart, but kind of, as you look at them, not not judgmentally, but as you look at them, they're going, they just don't live really well. Everybody got somebody in their mind? You know someone like that, don't you? Don't turn and nod at them, whatever you do. That'd be bad. James would say, if you want to know if somebody's wise, look at how they live. And this text specifically says, look for the quality of humility. Verse 13, uh, look for a good life, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. It's intriguing to me that, that when James says, when you look for a wise person, he gives humility as kind of the measuring stick. That's the, the benchmark. Uh, many in our world today say, would say, if you want to be wise, you know, Get educated, you know? Actually study, learn how to get ahead. Um, Learn the ways of business or the ways of the world, know-how, techniques, all those kind of things. But James says, if you get all the education in the world and learn all the, the tips of success, but you lose humility in the process, you're not gonna be wise, you'll be a fool. 
Because James understands a lack of humility will actually lead you to a foolish life. Um, over Thanksgiving, a, a cousin was visiting, and, and we had a conversation about trips we'd taken, and he was telling me about how he, w- he went to Germany recently. And I asked him, what was his highlight? And he says, well, I can't really call this a highlight, but he says, I went to Auschwitz. And for those of you who don't know, a lot of you be familiar with it, Auschwitz is that notorious place where the Nazis murdered, get this, one-sixth of the Jews that were murdered in World War II, about a million people were murdered at this, at this site. And so my, my cousin, as he was sharing about this, he says, it's not a place you enjoy. It says, you go, and as I was walking the grounds, I've never felt such a heaviness, such a mournfulness in the air as I walked through these grounds where all these people had been gassed and killed. And I've always been struck, I've always been struck by the fact that, that German people as a whole are, are some of the smartest people on the planet. I mean, think about it, the, the, the number of scientists and theologians and philosophers and thinkers and, and musicians that, that have come from, from that, that country. And you think, what would lead the Nazis? I mean, this really smart, at least in some ways, this really smart people, what would lead them to do something so foolish, so utterly and dastardly wrong? And you realize, again, it's pride. It's cultural pride to the place where the Nazis believed that they were infinitely superior human beings to the Jewish people. And that's how they were able to rationalize. And, and, and boy, they really did rationalize mass murder. Question, where does the, the folly or stupidity of racism come from? It comes from pride. The belief that somehow my race is better than their race or that race. The same is true for nationalism or, or classism, the idea that my nation or my social class is better than another nation or social class. Now, where does the stupidity of, of sexism come from? It comes from pride, the, the pride that, you know, my gender is better than your gender. See, pride leads to all kinds of, of foolishness, and so that's why James says in verse 13, he says, if you want to know who's wise among you, Look for a person whose deeds spring from a humble heart. Look for an absence of pride. Then notice the text says, if, if you want to determine who's wise, look for a person who lacks selfish ambition and envy. Ambition can be a good thing. I, I like this, this quote. Ambition is a poor excuse for not having enough sense to be lazy. I like that. Now, ambition, I said, it's not necessarily wrong. Laziness is certainly not to be lifted up as a virtue. Such, there's such a thing as, as kind of a wholesome ambition. We'd be pretty messed up in the world if there weren't ambitious people. But according to James, the selfishly ambitious person is a fool. Again, look at the text. In verse 14, it says, if you harbor selfish ambition and bitter envy in your hearts, don't boast about it. James is saying, if you're kind of kind of person with all kinds of smarts because you're selfishly ambitious, don't brag. I mean, in verse 15, he says, this kind of wisdom is driven by selfish ambition. It's not from God. It's from the world. It's unspiritual. He goes as far to say it's de- demonic, he says. There's a kind of worldly wisdom that says, if you want to get ahead, you know, you, if you want to succeed, you got to know how to take care of yourself. 
You gotta learn how to take care of the competition, how to, how to take people on. I'm, I wonder how many of you have seen the film uh, You've Got Mail? A little bit less violent than Gladiator, just saying. Um, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan film, and you've got Kathleen, uh, who is a bookstore owner, the shop around the corner that's uh, failing, and uh, she's getting advice from her friend by way of email, and her, her friend says, you gotta take it to the mattresses, which is a quote from another violent film, The Godfather. Um, but but she's ba he's basically saying to her, do whatever it takes. It's not personal, it's just business. If, if you wanna succeed, be ruthless with all those who oppose you. Uh, we see this in our world all the time. You watch the news. I, I mean, we saw it in Turkey this last week and the kind of brutality of, of, of invading another nation next door. Uh, we we, we kind of saw this in a way in our election. You know, uh, this last Monday, didn't we not? You know, there's kind of this tearing down of the other parties while elevating your own. This kind of worldly wisdom is, is far too common, it, it, and it's driven by selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, I, I, I think, and envy often go hand in hand. Selfish ambition is kind of you're looking to get ahead, and, and envy is like you don't want others to get ahead. You're, not happy, you're happy when you get ahead, and you're unhappy when others get ahead. James says if you have this kind of wisdom, don't brag about it, it's not from God. He actually says it's from the pit of hell. It's not really wisdom at all, but it's foolishness. In fact, it's evil, according to verse 16. Why? Why would he call it evil? Selfish ambition and bitter envy does a lot of damage. It hurts a lot of people. It, it, that kind of motive can, can cause you to manipulate. It can cause you to be a user of people. It can cause you to treat people as, as theologian Martin Buber famously once said, to, to treat people like an it rather than, an, than a thou. Treat, treat a person like an object. And, and, so you can end up treating a per, another person like that, but the, on the other hand, it can also hurt you a lot. Think of the damage that selfish ambition can do to you. Selfish ambition can lead you to compromise your values so that you can get ahead in some way. It gets tougher and tougher to, to look yourself in the mirror if you're living that way. It can persuade you to actually sell your soul for something like money or status or power. That's, that's actually folly in light of eternity. Selfish ambition can cause you to, to lose or, or damage core relationships in your life. You know, it can ruin marriages and, and families and friendships. And, and so James asks the question, who is wise among you? Look for people with this quality of humility and an absence of pride and an absence of, of selfish ambition. Now, I think most of us can probably think of somebody in our lives who is kind of obviously outright selfishly ambitious. Can you think of somebody? Somebody who maybe who, who in their pursuit of success has just hurt a lot of people? Maybe in the pursuit of career, they, they, they lost a marriage, or in the pursuit of money, they... they neglected their kids, uh, whatever it might be. I, I, I've, as I've reflected on this, in, in light of, of James' treatment of it, this warning, I'm reminded that this letter is actually for Christians. It's, 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 it's for the church. 
It, it, it's, it's written for, for those of us who, who probably wouldn't have a bent this way. And, and I think it just reminds me that none of us are immune to this temptation to be selfishly ambitious. Think about it for a second here. Someone once said that the point of all of Scripture is to remind us that we are not the point. <laughs> the point of all Scripture is to remind us that you and I are not the point. That God is the point. And really, the, the problem with the human condition is this. We want to be the point. We think we're the point. Um, when I get home after work, I, I want to be the point, you know? I want me, my wife to be like, oh, honey, I, I'm so very glad you're home. Please, sit here in this seat especially prepared for you. <laughs> and, and, and I know it's been a long, hard day, so I sent the kids away. Where did she send them? I don't know. They're just away. Uh, and dinner. I know your favorite food is a nice juicy steak, so it's T-bone today, and it'll be ready in a minute. You just rest there. And I don't know what you want to do tonight, but maybe you want to watch a show or, or the game or whatever. Hey, uh, what can I do, you know, to make your life happy? I want that, you know, sort of. Be kind of great, actually. When I come to work, I want that. When I, when I drive the road, on the road, I want that. It's like, get out of my way, it's my road, right? I, I want it all to revolve around me. I'm uppermost in my own affections. I, I want it all to be about me, my heart wants it to be about me, and get this, our culture does nothing but reinforce this. Every commercial I see says it's about me, and it's about my happiness, there's no room for suffering, or loss, or pain. It's all about me. But the Bible goes, actually, it's, it's not. There's more to the story than just you. And, and here's, here's kind of the funny thing. Often we do bring God into the mix. You know, you see, if you're the point, then, then you're actually kind of a God in your own mind, right? You're the, you're the, you're the God of your little universe, and, and so if there is a God, surely he exists to make me happy, right? And we begin to treat God not like a thou, but an it. He's also an object in our life. We, we maybe treat him like Aladdin and the lamp. We, we rub the lamp and, and out comes God on demand to offer us his three wishes, you see, the kind of selfish ambition that James is talking about here hits a little closer to home than, than those of us who are just selfishly ambition about our jobs or our, our, our finances or about our goals. It's the kind of worldly wisdom that says, my life is about me. It revolves around me. And so when James challenges us to pursue godly wisdom, he lifts up the greatness of something else, kind of the opposite of selfish ambition. He lifts up humility. Humility, one understanding or one definition could be that it's, it's the understanding, it's the realization that it's not about you. I, I like how C.S. Lewis once described it. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? Or how, how about what the Apostle Paul said, he was very pointed when he talked about this in Philippians 2. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves. And so, and so when James is lifting up God's wisdom, what, it, what he's really actually pointing us to is the character of God. God is not proud. In fact, God is the most humble being there is. We, if, if you want some con- convincing on that, read the rest of Philippians chapter 2. God who considered himself nothing so that he could elevate his father, Jesus in Christ, the cross, greatest expression of humility there is. Now James goes on in in verse 17 to describe what this wisdom that's marked by humility looks like. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. He, he lists all these character qualities to describe God's wisdom, and they pretty much all have to do with one thing, how we treat other people. God seems to care how we treat other people. Why is that? Because the kind of wisdom that, that comes from heaven values what is most important in all creation. People, people, people what God has made in his image. You know, there is a, a, a certain kind of wisdom that can enable somebody to be a good shopper, you know? You go to a yard sale and you can get a good deal. You, you, you find that thing that on Antiques Roadshow, you know, you, you cash in big time, right? You can have that kind of wisdom. There can be that kind of wisdom that can stretch a buck, that can, you know, fix a car, that can make a great meal, and those are all, those are all great you know, wisdoms, I mean, the, the idea that you could actually know how a sports team is going to perform, you know, you win the fantasy football pool and so forth. They're examples of wisdom, but really they're what you might call or could call secondary wisdom, you know, because they deal with things. They deal with stuff. Primary wisdom is a wisdom of character because it deals with what's most important to God, people. You know, when, when, when God looks down and he kind of asks the question, who is wise? Say, he's, he's, looking, he's not looking down on a hillside making notes on who's the most well-read or, or who's the most articulate or, or those who have the most money. He's not asking those questions. He's asking, who among hillside, who, who among those in the greater Vancouver area share in my character qualities? Who is like me? That, that's the wise person according to God. James goes on to list these character qualities in, in some detail. He, he says, the wisdom that comes from God is first of all pure. Pure, such a great word. Another word for pure is unmixed. No mixed motives. Not, not selfishly ambitious where there's often hidden motives. You're, you've got an agenda. You're trying to get at something. But pure, you know, what you see is is what you get. That, that's a wise person, says James. Verse 17 says a, a wise person is somebody who's peace-loving, a person who loves peace and who is a facilitator of peace. A wise person is someone who can confront a person without crushing them because they're doing it because they love peace and because there's just this humility about them. A wise person can affirm someone without flattering them because they've got pure motives. A wise person is a person who deals well with people because of their character. 
The third quality is consideration. A wise person is someone who has a considerate spirit. I I came across a great quote this week. I love this one. A waffle is just more considerate than a pancake. It's like, here, let me hold that syrup for you in these convenient little boxes. Isn't that great? What do you think of when you think of a considerate person? I, I think of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the golden, what we've come to call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But, but it's like when somebody consistently, think about this, when, when somebody consistently is showing up late for things, when they're showing up late for meetings, you know, we think of that as being a, maybe an inconsiderate person, right? And what can be going on there is that, that that person somehow thinks that their time is actually more valuable than this other person's time. That's not considering them as being as significant or as valued as you are. Consideration is one of those beautiful, humble characteristics that seeks to treat others at least as well as you treat yourself. And actually, the Apostle Paul would say, consider others more valuable than yourself. Treat them more highly than you do yourself. Wise person, according to James, is submissive in the very best sense of the word, meaning someone who's open and flexible and and teachable. Folks, the, the greatest rulers in the world haven't, haven't been, in, maybe in our ideas, haven't been ruthless tyrants that destroyed their enemies. Those haven't been the greatest rulers. Think about it. Who, who, who do you think was the greatest ruler in the Old Testament? I, I think you can make a great case for Moses. Moses, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness, uh, he, he, apparently something like a couple million people uh, from in, into freedom. I mean, Surely he was a great, great leader. And what does the Bible say about Moses? It says he was more humble than any other human being alive. And I don't think he wrote that, but maybe he could have. We don't know. He was strong, but he was also humble. And and that's what made him a great leader. I'd argue that's what made Jesus so awesome. Jesus had just tremendous strength matched by tremendous humility. And James says, wise people are submissive in the very best sense. And then James rounds out this list with full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, which means you got a person sincere. They, they mean what they say and they say what they mean. A wise person is someone who, who deals well with people, not because they learned all these human relation techniques or they attended a class or they listened to a podcast, they do this because they, they've learned how to share in the character of God himself. That's a wise person. The passage in James ends with kind of a, 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 an interesting line. It actually seems like it doesn't quite fit. It's in classic proverb style. It says in verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And James does this a lot. As you're reading James, and there'll be a section, and it seems like it's got an argument and a thought, and then he kind of throws something that takes it at a right, right turn. You're like, where are you going with that? Um, a number of scholars suggest that this might have been a, a common saying in the early church, 
something that was part of one of their songs. They, they recited it often. And they think that James is using it here. He's inserting it here, kind of equating peacemakers to people who are growing in the kind of wisdom that God smiles on, this wisdom from above. The picture James gives is a farming metaphor. You know, he says sowing and reaping and harvesting. Yeah, I was thinking this week of how my first real job was as a farmer. You know, when I was 14 or 15 years old, I worked on a, a couple of different farms. And uh, funny, funny thing as I was thinking about it, because there was a brief, brief moment in my life when I was about 14 years old that I actually thought that it'd be such a great thing to be a farmer. Uh, and it was partly because of this one summer. Um, I worked for the nicest man. His name was Carl Reeser. And he had this small cabbage farm. And uh, he hired guys, kids from our church. And, and so I was hired on with a couple of friends. And it was just the best summer. And it was the first time in my life where I'd actually seen, I'd actually planted something. And, and actually, even before planting, I got to drive a tractor and plow a field. And then we sat on the back of a, a planter and we planted these cabbage seedlings. And, and then I fertilized that field, and we weeded that field, and we watched these cabbages grow and mature, and at the end of the summer, we harvested these cabbages, and they sent, got sent off the market, and me, like a little cat with a mouse, brought a cabbage home to my mama. Here you go, mom. I grew this myself, right? I love, uh, I love this language of farming, even though I, to this day, can't stand gardening to save my life. But folks, as we seek to live out God's wisdom, it's like you're sowing seeds of peace. As, as we, it's, it's like we're planting wisdom in the world. We're planting all these good characteristics that, that James describes. And what are we promised? We're promised a harvest of righteousness. And, and, and you're really sowing, you're, you're sowing peace in, I'd suggest, two places. First of all, you're sowing seeds of peace into your own life. Great place to sow, by the way. Back to this temptation that we have to have life kind of be all about us. It sounds so attractive having the world revolve around us. Jesus actually teaches the opposite. That we're actually most free when it's not about us, when it's not about you. See, if See, if it's about me and I come home, it means I'm carrying all these expectations. If it's about me and I go to work, I, I'm bringing with me these, these expectations because it's about me, so I want, so things had better be kind of lined up the way I want them and how I want it. When it's all about me, I'm not free to, to serve and, and love my wife. When it's about me, I'm not free to, to love and to serve my kids or my friends or my workplaces. I'm not free to be considerate to others. I'm not free to do anything but this, free to be frustrated. Because <laughs> if you, have, you carry all these expectations with you in your life that it's about you, you're going to be frustrated all the time. It's an exhausting way to live. And here's the other thing. If, you're, if it's always about you, you're going to be angry. You're going to be one angry person. In fact, I'd say the more your life is about you, the more miserable you're going to be. Do you want to be, be a, a miserable? You want a miserable marriage? Be uppermost in your own affections. Do, do, do you want a strained or, or fractured relationship with your kids? Be uppermost in your own affections. 
Do you want to be despised in your workplace or in your school? Just be the point of everything, right? The, the more things are about you, the more miserable you are going to be. And yet the more we understand it's not about me, the more we are freed up to serve and to love and to enter humbly into the lives of other people. Wisdom born out of humility leads to peacemaking, and it, it leads to all this freedom and joy and peace and happiness, if you will, what we're really, really longing for. So first of all, we sow peace in our own lives, and we find happiness that we weren't even looking for. And secondly, as we pursue God's wisdom, we're sowing into community. What's the harvest? James says it's a harvest of righteousness. So what James means, what does he mean by that? We talked about this in chapter one, how in the verse where he says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And we talked about how quite simply, righteousness can simply mean living the kind of life that is pleasing to God. But righteousness, as I've said, is, is one of these great, rich, deep, expansive words, and it can also mean right-relatedness. And, and right-relatedness in our relationship with ourselves and relatedness to, to others and with God. And so godly wisdom, when we pursue it and prioritize it, it can actually transform relationships, and it can transform a community. I, I think uh, I thought of this this week, my wife, as she's been seeking to live out the way of Jesus in her workplace. And over the years, it's been great. She's had one kind of primary client in her life, and, and she, over time, has been growing in these qualities of, of wanting to be a humble servant in her workplace. You know, the, the business that she works for, um, like any business, their primary problem is not money. We think money would be, money troubles would be the number one business problem. What's the number one business problem? People. It's like, uh, if it weren't for the people, this would be a great place to work, right? If it weren't, be the, if it weren't for the people, this would be a great church to pastor. But I've been watching, you know, and, and, and the kind of problems that, that, that people bring, conflict, just differences, different points of view, uh, you know, anger, discord, uh, gossip and, and slander, tearing others down, you know, this, all this kind of stuff. And I've been watching over the years as Angel has, has tried to sow seeds of peace in that workplace. In, in, in fact, sometimes she stands up for the right way to honor people. She's, she said to her, her employers, she says, it's not right to treat people like that. Or, or this dynamic that we've got going on, this is not healthy, it's not good. She actually says that sometimes. And, and, and what I've seen is this harvest of right relatedness that's growing in this business. It, it's the coolest thing to watch. And you know what, the, the business actually, it, 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 it helps you, it helps them because the business benefits from these harmonious relationships and angel benefits from being in a business that's better at honoring people, right? I think of how sowing seeds of peace can change a family, can, can change a neighborhood. I mean, any of you have fractured relationships with your neighbors? Sowing seeds of peace can transform your relationship with your next door neighbor who cut down the tree that you, you loved and it can cause you to actually build a bridge to them. Uh, it can transform a church. If we begin walking out this way of, 
of, of wisdom from above, we begin to prioritize other people. We're not out just for our own rights. We're lifting up and serving one another. We're not selfishly ambitious. We're ambitious for the whole community to thrive. We're not envious. We're actually celebrating when others get ahead. Folks, this kind of godly wisdom, this, this really, we're talking about the way Jesus lived. This is the way of Jesus, is worthy of our pursuits, not just for our sakes, but also for the sake of the world. So can I say this? Let's get after it. Let's, let's pursue it. Uh, Proverbs, uh, Solomon told us, chase it down. Do whatever you have to do to find it. Pursue it. I would say quite simply, ask for it. James said, if, if any of you lack wisdom, <laughs> you know, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and what will happen? It will be given to you. I, I love the fact that right off the bat, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Uh, so this morning I wondered, do any of you lack wisdom? When we listen to those, those characteristics, you know, pure, you know, an absence of pride, selfish ambition, an absence of that, humility, a deep humility in our lives, um, submissive, considerate. Can you, can you look at your life and go, I could be more of that? Then that means you, you actually lack wisdom and you can ask for it. And God who gives generously will give it to you. Isn't that good? Without finding fault. It means you don't even have to deserve it. He's just willing to give. And finally, and most importantly, let's pursue the one who personifies humility and wisdom, our God revealed in Christ. Let's take a few moments and let's pray. Shall we do that? God is here. Let's just ask God to grant us his wisdom, his heart. And as you're praying, recognize that, that we're unable to be wise on our own. True wisdom is, is sharing God's character, which means wisdom is a gift. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. So Lord, this morning we pray for your wisdom. God, we, we want to just confess to you, Father, that we're often confused about what the point is. We think we're the point. Forgive us for that, Lord. It's, it seems to be a fundamental flaw in us. And uh, we're without hope to, to fix that on our own. And so we actually would ask for your mercy and your grace and ask you to transform us from the inside out. You'd heal that in us, Lord, that we would become ambitious in the best way, that we'd become humble in the best way. Lord, would you, would you change us? Would you just, I pray, reveal our pride and grow all those beautiful qualities that reveal your character so that we might enjoy the life you have for us and that we might be a blessing to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So glad you've been here with us this morning. And uh, trust you won't leave before you've hung out a little bit. And we have 
refreshments back there that you can avail yourself of and meet, meet a friend, maybe make a friend. Um, if you'd like prayer this morning, if you have a need, uh, or perhaps this morning you just need to hear words of blessing. And, uh, and our, our prayer team would love to, to pray for you or just bless you. Uh, you might n- need to know that word from him today, and you can do that. Make, avail- make yourself available to that. Uh, and then I want to give you this blessing before you go. Man, just sense that uh, God wants to give you greater confidence to ask for wisdom so that you will know that you will get it. And you'll not only get wisdom, you'll get his very self in you. May God bless you. Have a great week.